good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to everyone listening, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 11 of the Well-Read Podcast. I am your host, Megan Bierke, aka The Real Bookish Writer. I am a reader, writer, bookseller, book festival goer, and I am and always have been obsessed with genre fiction. For those of you who are new, while you're here, there will be two segments, a short one where I review the books I've read for the past week, and then a longer one which will consist of a one-on-one author interview. Without further ado, let's jump right in. This past week was a light reading week for me as I only finished one book, but I'm officially obsessed with it. This debut, which is by Joe Segura, is called Raiders of the Lost Heart. Archaeologist Dr. Socorro, aka Cory Mejia, has a bone to pick, literally. It's been Cory's life goal to lead an expedition deep into the Mexican jungle in search of the long-lost remains of her ancestor, Chamali, an ancient warrior of the Aztec Empire. But when she's invited to join an all-expensive paid dig to do just that, Cory is sure it's too good to be true. And she's right. As the world-renowned expert on Chamali, by rights, Cory should be leading the expedition, not sharing the glory with her disgustingly handsome nemesis. But Dr. Ford Matthews has been finding new ways to best her since they were in grad school. Ford certainly isn't thrilled either. With his life in shambles, the last thing he needs is a reminder of their rocky past. But as the dig begins, it becomes clear they'll need to work together when they realize a thief is lurking around their campsite, forcing the pair to keep their discoveries and lingering attraction under wraps. With money-hungry artifact smugglers, the Mexican authorities, and the lies between them closing in, there's only one way this all ends. Explosively. Like I mentioned, I am obsessed with this book. As a massive fan of Indiana Jones and National Treasure, this book immediately piqued my interest and definitely held it throughout the entire story. Corey and Ford are great characters with incredible chemistry, and I really loved the supporting characters as well, and all of the adventure surrounding the expedition. This book is sexy, sweet, heartbreaking, funny, and ridiculously fun. I highly, highly recommend this romance, especially because it is actually released today. So congratulations, Joe, and thank you, Berkeley, so much for sending me an advanced copy. Now let's jump into the review portion of the episode. I am honored to introduce my guest today, not just because I am an absolutely massive fan of hers as a person, but because her debut, This Vicious Grace, was one of my favorite books of 2022, and because the duology as a whole is one of my favorite YA fantasy series of all time. This Vicious Grace was a Barnes & Noble YA book club pick last year, was hailed as one of the best fantasies of 2022 by BuzzFeed, was a 2023 Southern Book Prize finalist, and is being translated into a dozen languages. The sequel, This Cursed Light, which is also absolutely phenomenal, received a starred review from Kirkus and is out today. A former public school teacher, she serves as vice chair of the board for Writer House, a writing nonprofit, and mentored aspiring writers through the Pitch Wars mentorship program. In her free time, she enjoys fostering rescue kittens and getting lost in the woods with her family. Please welcome Emily Thede. Well, welcome, 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 Emily. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I am good. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited <laughs> to talk with you. Uh, My pleasure. I have been a fan since I read your book last year. It was freaking amazing. <laughs> I remember I got an arc of the first one when I went to Y'all West last year. And I remember Thanks. I basically fought people to get in line <laughs> to get one. Uh, Those arcs and- were, they were in high demand <laughs> once upon a time. They uh, they still are. I'm a part of a couple like arc swapping groups on Facebook. Oh, yeah? And whenever someone posts, hey, you know, um, does anyone have this to trade? Or, hey, um, I'm looking for this. They get freaking like 
taken That's immediately. So good to know, because yeah, I don't, you know, I wasn't as involved in that part of the reader community as a lot of people are these days. So like arcs were a new concept to me when I became an author. And in my head, it's like, once the book comes out, why would anyone want the arc? But it's good to know, because I have like, I think one or two left of this curse light. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with them now? Like the book comes out in a week and a half, but all right, if people still like them. Yep. There is definitely a community that likes them, especially once they read a book and they love it. They want uh-huh. that, you know, that special quote unquote special edition yeah. where you can't buy it anywhere. You have to trade for it somehow. Um, but I freaking love the series. I'm so Thank glad you. that you said yes. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, I did want to ask though, because you just recently went to Y'all Fest. I get Y'all yes. West and Y'all Fest mixed up mm. a couple times. How was your trip? It was good. Um, I wasn't part of the invited roster. So um, it's a little different experience than it is for the authors who are doing panels and stuff. I got to just kind of lurk in the background, but it's always fun because um, when you're not on the official program, you still run into readers, but it's the readers who are sort of the most dedicated because they're the ones that actually like followed me on all the social media. They knew I was coming. They knew what I looked like. They knew I had arcs and all of that. So it's, it's a really cool experience to get to you know, interact in really sort of close, intimate settings with readers that have resonated with your work. And I had my oldest daughter with me and it was the first time I think that she got to see me as an author interacting with my readers. And that was really cool. Yeah. Not just mom, but you're also this big time kick-ass author. Uh, (laughs) And she's very aware of my career, but it was the first time she'd really seen people coming up to me. And that was, that was really fun. And being excited and happy. Well, at yeah. some point, I need you to come out to Y'all West so I can officially meet you because I, I live to. in California. <laughs> so I need you to go to Y'all West at some point in the next nice. couple of years. Put that on my calendar. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Now, I'm just going to start right off because I, sure. I enjoy asking everyone this question because it's different for everyone. But why did you want to become a writer? So I've always, I've always loved books and I've always told myself stories to fall asleep, sort of like, you know, composing mental fan fiction. If I watch a movie or I read a book and there's something about it that that I wish there was more of, that I could explore it deeper, um, I would sort of rewrite scenes from books and movies in my head. Um, I have ADHD, and so when I try to fall asleep at night, I, I don't understand the concept of clearing your mind. That's not a thing I do. So I basically just have to sort of like create a movie in my head to distract myself from the fact that I'm going to bed until I fall asleep. And so I've been doing that my entire life. And I just thought that was something that everybody did. Turns out it's not. And so really, um, I thought for one, that I thought that all writers knew their entire book um, before they started writing. So I honestly, as someone who did not have an entire book in my head, I always figured it would be amazing to be a writer, but I couldn't be. I couldn't be an author because authors were these mythical creatures who knew exactly what was going to happen in an eight book series before they sat down. And I knew that that wasn't me. Um, And then my mother actually challenged me back in 2015, I think, to do NaNoWriMo. She said, you've always talked about writing a book. The whole point of this is that you're not supposed to overthink it. It's not supposed to be good. You're just supposed to sit down every day and write some words and see what happens. And I was at a point in my life where my kids had just started sleeping through the night. And I felt like that TV show where the person like takes the magic pill and they suddenly have way more brain power because um, my brain had basically been asleep for the past couple of years. So it seemed like the perfect time to tackle that challenge. And so I had a good idea and I had a terrible idea for a book. So I started with the terrible one because I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. And I just sat down for a month and it turns out that for me, 
if I sit down every day and I just start writing and I don't stop to think about it, that my brain will sort of fill in the blanks and it'll just kind of, the story will unroll as I go. And I had so much fun doing it that I was hooked. I, there was no going back from that. So I started working on the better ideas. And a few years later, here I am. Well, I'm very happy that you sat down and you pushed through that. And thank you, mom, <laughs> for encouraging Emily to yep. do this because your books are freaking fantastic. <laughs> Now, where did the idea for the, it's the last Fenestra, right? Is that, Duality, did I say yes. that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, where did that idea come from? So I think it all dates back to the first time I watched the X-Men movie, the one that came nice. out in the year 2000. Uh, so the movie's been out for quite a while now. Um, I'd, I'd grown up watching the X-Men cartoons and enjoyed them as well. So I have that background, but it was really watching that movie specifically the dynamic and the thematic contrast between the characters of Wolverine and Rogue, that you have this character who is very disconnected from society, prefers it that way, doesn't want to be a hero, and yet he has these powers that are theoretically great. You know, he has these healing abilities, he is, you know, nearly indestructible, he lives a long time, all these things seem desirable, and yet he's a very unhappy person. And then you have this other character who is this, you know, in the, in the movie, she's a teenage girl. There's an age thing. I always want to clarify for people in my <laughs> mental head canon, uh, Wolverine doesn't age, Rogue does. So like, I'm not making this weird here. Um, but the idea there was just the, the contrast between the character, as I just described with Wolverine and Rogue who desperately wants to have a family, to have friends, to have community, to have relationships. And yet her powers make that basically impossible to do. And I picked up right away when I first saw that movie on kind of the way they were playing those two against each other and the fact that they had these, you know, sort of polar opposite experiences. And I always just wish they could have explored it more. Um, But when you have a movie like that, that has a large cast of characters, you can only devote so much time to each of them. And that just stuck with me for years and years and years. And I just always played with that dynamic in my head. And so a few years ago, I guess it was back in 2019, um, my querying publishing journey was not getting anywhere. And I was starting to get really resentful, which I think happens a lot when authors are querying. You start to feel like I've done everything you've asked of me publishing. Why won't you, why won't someone pick up my book? And I realized that I was either going to get bitter and quit, or I had to remind myself why I was doing this in the first place. And so I just decided to write something that was completely fun, just fun. Um, And at first I considered just going ahead and writing actual fan fiction, but I'm really stubborn and I didn't want to spend a lot of time working on something that I knew couldn't be published. And so I thought, okay, well, I can't, then I have to take these themes and these character types and turn it into something different. And so I said, okay, well, I'll turn it into fantasy. Um, And then it just sort of like rolled downhill and pretty soon there were flying demon attacks. And I just sort of built it out from starting with a character who wants to be able to get close to people but physically can't and then I just kept making it worse and worse and worse for her in every possible way and building a world that makes it even worse for her and it just it turned into something I was really excited about and then I thought oh no now I have to figure out how to convince publishing to buy a deadly fantasy that's kind of a rom-com in the middle that's sort of loosely based on the X-Men and I was like what have I done to myself um because at the time the romanticy wasn't really Publishing was really looking for these dark and dangerous YA fantasies. And so I kind of started with that intention of writing something that fit in the current market. And then it just like went completely off the rails. Um, But luckily, my agent 
picked it up, I guess the first day that she was in the office as an agent and she was a big fan. And then we went on submission and my editor loved it too. So it worked out. There you go. Oh my goodness. That's such, that's such a good story. And that's so freaking cool that the first day that she was in is your editor female. Uh, yeah. So my agent, okay. so my agent was an editor and then she became an agent and I knew that she was joining this agency and I was really interested and I thought her wish list sounded right for me. So I think I slid my query. Like it was in that email inbox the day she started at the office. I don't even think they had put her name on like the signature of the response emails yet. Uh, but yeah, so she picked it up. I think the next day she emailed to request the full manuscript and then it was less than a week later that we had the call. So it's very fast. That was not my first that time querying. so but. freaking cool. That is such a cool thing that you guys kind of came into it, you know, at the same time together. That's, yes. it was meant to be, right? Yeah, it was I was her first be. client. And I like to think that all of those previous books and previous years that I was querying, you know, I'm not necessarily a big believer in fate, but I, I like to think that all of that disappointment and all of that rejection was necessary for me to sign on with the absolute perfect agent and the the book that I really am glad that I started my career with. So I do want to ask, how was, I mean, I know you said that you did the querying process and you really didn't get anywhere and then you shifted. How -hmm. was the querying process? I mean, it sounds like it was fairly immediate uh, with your current agent. How was it though crafting the query letter though? Because I know that's a huge, like, oh my goodness, I need to do this right because if I don't do this right, then the book might not get picked up. How was that process? So first I will say I really like working on query letters, just not my own. I think the hardest thing about writing a query letter is the fact that you know the whole book. And a query letter is not supposed to summarize the whole book. The query letter is just getting someone interested enough to want to read more. Like That's all it is. And I think once you, once you really focus on a query letter as marketing material, as a pitch, I like to think of them as like movie trailers. You watch a movie trailer and it says, you know, in a land far, far away, a young man born with a special gift has to fight the dark forces of whatever, whatever. Like that's all they're really giving you. If it's a movie that has a lot of romance in it, the trailers are going to show you a little bit of that. Like they're just showing you the yummiest parts of the book and giving you just enough of the kind of the hook in the story that you're like, okay, I want to know more about that. Um, but that's why it's so difficult to work on when you're when you're aware of everything in the book. So I recommend for anyone who is out there working on career letters, talk to another writer tell them a little bit about what your book is about and then let them write your query letter and then do the same for them. And you might actually find that it's a lot easier to write someone else's query for them because they are going to, when you're speaking to someone in person, you know, you're going to tell them the most important stuff because you know that they're not going to sit there and listen to you talk for three hours. So you're going to just explain the basic idea of the book and then let them do that for you. And then you can fine tune it from there. So yeah, I mean, I think my first few attempts at query letters were probably terrible and tragic. Um, by the time I actually began querying though, I had gone through um, one mentorship program the first time. And then the second book, I'd gone through two mentorship programs. So I I waited until I really felt like I knew what I was doing and that I knew how to write a good query letter at that point, which helped. Um, but yes, there were initial attempts that, were, that we'll never see the light of day. I, I really, really liked that idea about like partnering up with someone and having you write theirs and then mm-hmm. they write yours because I'm fingers crossed, hopefully going to be be querying uh, this upcoming spring. And I am so stressed out about it. I queried a manuscript that I finished probably four years ago and the manuscript mm-hmm. was absolutely terrible. 
but you know, when you're there, you're like, okay, yeah. this isn't that bad. But now looking back, I'm just like, oh my God, it was terrible. Um, but it's one of those things because it can kind of make or break your book, you know, mm-hmm. depending on the letter and, you know, how well you write it, you know, you can send it in and your manuscript can be absolutely incredible. But if you don't query properly, some, you know, people might pass and it might never see the light of day. So there's always that anxiety about crafting and sending out that query letter. So I really really like that. Um, You know, I I think they still do the manuscript wishlist academy manuscript. One of those where you can, um, you know, you can pay. I don't remember how much it is for a query letter. It's not super, super cheap, but I would say that's one of the things I do think is probably a worthwhile investment if you're someone who is really worried about your query and you don't have access to like critique partners or betas who can help you with it, that sometimes it's worth it just to kind of have someone who's in the industry look at it and say, okay, this is what you're doing well and this is what you're not. Because those skills of a query letter, you're going to be using, (laughs) bad news, for the rest of a publishing career because (laughs) you're still basically having to, like the query letter is almost what your book pitch is your elevator pitch so even once you're published every time someone says what is your book about you're like okay I have to do the same thing all over again um I do also on my website you have to probably dig a little bit but I do have some uh blog posts about writing query letters um we I used to do something when I would teach uh, little seminars about it where we would do sort of a mad libs um because I actually think that with a query letter people try too hard and they try to get fancy if you start with it basically you know the character character descriptor has to blank, but if they don't, then blank. Like you fill that in first, then just add a little bit to it. That's a lot easier than trying to start with a blank page. Well, I am a hundred percent going to do that because that is absolutely brilliant because I suck at summarizing because like you said, you know your entire story and something you think might be important for someone to initially know is not important for them to know. Almost so I'm going to look none all that of up. it is important for them to know. Like that's the weirdest <laughs> part when you really think about a query letter like you're really just saying like, "Ooh, wouldn't you like to read a story about this cool thing?" And that's kind of it. And I think and the problem it. is yeah, we want to tell them everything that's in it, but the goal is just to get them interested enough that they read it for themselves and learn all those cool things themselves. Okay, well you just you just helped my anxiety in so many ways <laughs> so and I and I am 100% going to take that advice and I am definitely going to go on your website Um, because, yeah, like I said, my anxiety, I'm already stressing about it and I'm not doing it for several months because I still need to go through edit. So I appreciate that. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Querying is is rough. It's probably one of the toughest parts about publishing, honestly. Okay. Well, if that, if I know that, then I can get past that. I can, I can do it. You can Um, do it. Now you did do, you were a part of Pitch Wars. You were a mentor in the mentorship program. Mm -hmm. And I know Pitch Wars ended, um, but for those people who don't know what Pitch Wars was, could you tell them a little bit about it and kind of what your experience was like being a part of that program? Sure. So Pitch Wars was a really incredible program started by Brenda Drake, who is an author. Uh, It was started 10 years before it ended. I can't remember exactly if it ended last year or the year before. Um, But she just had this idea for a program where established authors or editors or just anyone with some kind of knowledge in the industry could basically uh, choose one manuscript that they really liked and work on that with the with the author in question and sort of give them the basics of the industry while also helping them improve their craft. And then having what was called an agent showcase at the end where they would then present the pitches online for agents to go through and then they could request more. And honestly, I think one of the biggest benefits of the program 
were also the things that frustrated some people applying to it, um, which is that it was set up to replicate the experience of trying to become a traditionally published author in that you had to research all of the mentors. So my first experience with it was as a mentee. I applied to be part of the program and you could go through all of the mentors. You could read their blog posts about what they were looking for, what their skills were, all that stuff. And you decided on the four or the six that you thought would be the best fit for your work. And then you had to submit a query letter, um, the first 10 pages of your work. And if they liked it, then they would request more. And so you really kind of had this like little mini querying to publication sort of experience, even just trying to get into the program. Um, by the time that I applied to be a mentee, it had grown a lot. Um, and it had created some really big stars. Um, Children of Blood and Bone was the big breakout success the year before, before I got into the program. And so it had gained a reputation for sort of uh, making careers overnight because the way the agent showcase would work is that agents knew that by the time you were presenting your work at the agent showcase, that you had one, you'd have gone through all these steps that you knew kind of the basics of the industry. They knew that you were someone who had to have committed to really intense revisions for a couple months, which tells an agent that you're willing to do the work that they're going to be asking you to do as well. And people were, you know, putting out good work that had already gone through a lot of work and a lot of polish. So it was from an agent perspective, it was like all the treats at the best part of the buffet table. Cause you know, it wasn't not to say that there weren't equally good books out there that weren't in the program, but they just, they knew they had a level of guarantee. And I think that that was really attractive to agents. So it turned into sort of a big and occasionally stressful thing um, because I think a lot of writers saw it as their one opportunity and it never was that, um, but obviously it could launch careers very quickly. So my first year um, when I got selected as a mentee, I had an amazing experience being mentored. Uh, my mentor was wonderful. I had an amazing experience getting to know other writers really kind of for the first time, making connections, making friendships with the other, other people in my pitch wars class. Um, the actual showcase, was not the greatest 24 hours of my life. <laughs> um, you know, I'd gone through this program. I'd, we'd all swap manuscripts. We'd read each other's work. And so many people had said, you know, your book's so great. You're going to get picked up by an agent right away. And then they put it, the showcase online. And um, it was all very public at that point. So you could actually see agents requesting manuscripts like in real time. And at that point, Twitter was really huge. And everyone in the publishing industry was kind of like online watching this to see which book was going to get all the attention. And so my year, they went up at 10 p.m. And people start getting requests. Some people start getting more requests, dozens of requests. And I had nothing. I mean, just absolute crickets, not a single request. And building everything up, it's kind of like querying, but you take the whole like year-long journey and squash it into one day, basically. And I did in the end end up getting three requests the following day, at which point I think I was just like crying in a dark room. So I didn't even mean anything. <laughs> um, and then I went on, I picked myself up and I queried that book the old fashioned way for a year before I trunked it, wrote another one, got into a different mentorship, queried that one until I trunked it. And that's when I started writing This Vicious Grace. So my experience as a mentee was wonderful up until the very end, but that was sort of inevitable. And I think it taught me a lot and gave me kind of some tougher calluses that I would need later on in my, my publishing experience. And then I went on to become a mentor and I mentored for two years. Um, I mentored Lissa Mia Smith, whose book Ravel came out January last 
year, this year? I have no idea what year it is anymore, but it was recent. It's wonderful. And it's a Moulin Rouge inspired fantasy with lots of romance and banter. And I absolutely adore it. Um, and then my second mentee, Sophie Clark, also has a wonderful book, but I will wait until she has things to say about. <laughs> yeah, that. don't get in trouble. Don't get yes, in trouble for that I one. I get in trouble. <laughs> and you are also active at Writer's House, yes. right? Which is a nonprofit that's dedicated to writing and building a community. Can you tell us a little bit more about Writer's House and kind of what sure. your involvement is uh, yeah, them? so it's it's a local writing nonprofit where they do classes, uh, workshops, you know, poetry readings, book readings. Um, and I signed up to take a class there after my first experience with NaNoWriMo before Pitch Wars and all of that. Because, uh, you know, I, I had finished a manuscript and I thought, all right, well, I should probably take classes on this because I don't know what I'm doing. And I remember they had a beginning novel class and an advanced novel class. And I thought, well, I've written a whole manuscript, so I don't think I should be in the beginner class, but I also knew that I was completely unqualified to take an advanced level writing class because I had no experience, but I just kind of snuck in anyway, like you were supposed to submit a writing sample and I just forgot to um, and showed up on the first day. And it was a, <clears throat> sorry, I'm losing my voice after Thanksgiving. Um, it was a workshop style class. So, you know, you were in a classroom with other people. They said, you know, raise your hand if you're willing to share work first. And I was like, all right, we're ripping this bandaid off. And I did it. And so I had a great experience just having other writers giving me a lot of the, the very basic newbie author stuff that I just didn't know. You know, I remember one of my classmates said something like, um, I don't need to know every single footstep she takes, like just skip to the good stuff or he would say things like, you know, maybe, maybe you don't want to start with your character waking up and looking in the mirror and then giving a long monologue about the history of her world. Like, you know, maybe let's try to get to more entertaining stuff. And it, so it was kind of like drinking from fire hose. Like I got a lot of that advice really fast, um, which I was really excited about because I just wanted to learn at that point. And then I went on to teach the occasional seminar there. I taught a querying course a couple of years ago. Um, and somehow ended up uh, being asked to be the vice chair of the board this past year. So not really sure how much responsibility there is in that, but uh, I'll be a figurehead if that's what they want me to be. So yeah, it's a great organization. They often do offer classes online too. So I suggest people check it out because it's just a great place to learn writing from other writers. That was going to be my next question is because I know you, I know it's a local uh, yes. like nonprofit to you. But that's what I was going to ask is if they also do stuff online that anyone can kind of they learn do. from. And then and we'll stuff. be doing more, I think, in the future. We're still sort of catching up with the technology, but especially, you know, during the peak of COVID years, uh, they did a lot of stuff online and there still is a demand for that. So there's sort of some classes, I think, that are hybrid, other classes that are just online, other classes that are just in person. It just varies. Well, this may come as a shock to you, but I will definitely be checking that out as well. <laughs> Please do. I do want to ask because you've had so many incredible kind of moments in your career but you've also like you said you did NaNoWriMo then you did Pitch Wars your mentor mentee you did all of this stuff what is your most memorable moment from your entire publishing career and you can have a couple you don't just need to give me one but well, I'm interested I to know I just had a real doozy of one so I'm gonna go with that um because I think anyone who reads why fantasy will appreciate why this was a moment for me um after Showing up at Yalfest uh, again, not invited, not on panels, but I know enough authors that um, sometimes someone will say like, hey, we're, we're allowed to bring, bring a plus one to, you know, the official author after party, like you can be my plus one. And so I, I thought, okay, sure. Um, but since I wasn't technically 
invited, you know, I was like, I'm going to let everyone else go through the buffet line. I'm just going to sit out back. Like, I don't want to be pushy because technically I'm not really a guest here. Um, and so I found a quiet bench in the backyard of this beautiful Charleston mansion, just sitting down quietly. I had brought my 12 year old with me. So she was sitting there too. Um, and then first Cassandra Claire with her posse took the other seats, you know, we're just sitting like, like really nice lawn chairs, you know, like around a little outdoor seating area. So it's me and my daughter. And then it's Cassandra Claire saying, you know, hi, I'm Cassie. And I'm like, hi, I'm Emily. <laughs> hi. Over the span of about the next 30 to 45 minutes, she was joined by Holly Black. And I kept thinking, I'm not supposed to be here at this party. I'm certainly not supposed to be like the only person talking to these two huge name authors. I should probably find a polite way to to, to leave so that other people can come talk to them because I'm sure there are people who want to talk to them. Um, but then Cassandra Claire got a call, took it and said, yeah, Lee, we're in the back. And I was like, if Lee Bardugo is coming over, I am not moving. Like, I think the whole place could have lit on fire. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not leaving. I'm not, leaving. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not leaving not, this. I'm not leaving. Sure enough, Lee Bardugo breezed in, plopped right down. And so it was just me, my 12 year old, Cassandra Claire, Holly Black and Lee Bardugo talking about desserts and social anxiety and books and publishing and all the things um, until I peaced out for the night. So still not completely sure it actually happened. Like there's a part of me that's like, was that a fever dream? Did I imagine that? But it's kind of hard to beat that in terms of memorable moments. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> oh my exactly. God. Holy crap. I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't move. Holy yeah, crap. I think I held up my phone when Lee Bardugo said, oh, hi, I'm Lee. And I was like, I'm Emily. I wrote The Murder Lemon. And I just held up my phone that just had the cover of This Vicious Grace. And I'm like, what? Get, tell her the name of the book, Emily. No, The Murder Lemon. I wrote The Murder Lemon. But Lee <laughs> the Bardugo murder lemon. just as cool and has just as much personality as you would expect her to. So it did not phase her at all. But I just remember thinking, okay, Emily, use your big girl world words. You can, <laughs> you can talk to them like an adult oh professional author. Who knows? Kind it makes me out. happy though. It makes me happy to know that like authors still geek out over other authors. Oh yes. Like that makes Absolutely. me, that makes me happy. And for those of you who don't know, Cassandra Clare, Holly Black and Leigh Bardugo, they are huge. Like, They're like the queens. massive. Yeah. Yes. The queens of <laughs> fan of YA fantasy. Mm -hmm. And holy crap, that had to be so freaking cool. That is such an amazing it memory. Was wild just absolutely wild and they were just so lovely and so easy to talk to and so fun and so it was one of those things that like half my brain is just screaming at a really high pitch and the other half is like this is actually just the chillest part of this entire weekend like it was just so easy to talk to them so it was wonderful truly life-changing I do not know if any of them will ever remember me or my name or meeting me but I will never forget it that's oh my goodness okay so my goal <laughs> is to at least be invited to an author dinner as a plus one. That is my goal, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Now, speaking of the murder lemon, I want to yes. I want to go to that and which is a fantastic title, by the way. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> the murder lemon. Uh it's inspired by like the Mediterranean and in mm -hmm. particular kind of Italy, correct? Yes, the um, Amalfi Coast of Italy. Mm -hmm. The Amalfi Coast. Why did you pick the Amalfi Coast to influence your book? Why Italy? So I actually tend to add a lot of those kind of the final world building elements pretty late in the process. Like I knew I wanted it to be an island and I was kind of just starting from there. And when I was, I happened to be at the beach 
with my one of my dear friends who lives in Rome. Uh, she comes back to the U.S. to visit family every summer. So she was in the country with her two daughters and I was there with my two daughters. We just meet up for vacation. And I was at that point in the story where I was starting to kind of figure out how I was going to, you know, add more and make it a more immersive experience by adding all those little touches that kind of create the world. And so I thought, well, I already wrote this book that was supposed to be a dark fantasy, but it's real kind of a rom-com, but it also sort of makes people cry. And so I already knew I was playing with something that I didn't really know where it fit in the market. And so I thought, all right, well, I might as well just go completely off the rails. And at the time, lots of, you know, Slavic, wintry, cold forest was very much on trend in fantasy. And I was like, well, I can't stand out by doing what everyone else is doing. And also I wrote this book that I don't really know where it fits to begin with. So I might as well just keep doing what I've been doing, which was just having fun and putting all the things I wanted to read in a book. Um, and the Amalfi Coast of Italy is just one of my favorite places on earth. So the fact that I had that in my mind already, but then I was also there with my friend who lives in Italy, who was able to help me refresh my memory because I hadn't been back in a couple of years. You know, we just sat on the beach and she was talking about like her favorite things to smell and to see when she's there, which triggered memories of mine. And it just sort of expanded into something that offered me an escape and let me play around in the place I wished I could hop on the plane and go to, but I couldn't because I have two small children at the time. So yeah, it was really just my favorite tropes and my favorite character types and my favorite location all crammed into one book that was 100% just for me. And I still can't quite believe that so many other people have read it and enjoyed it when I never knew if it would go anywhere beyond my computer. And that's just another example of, it may be cliche, but write what you want to read. Yeah. And that's what you want to read. And the book is freaking fantastic. It was honestly, it was in my top three favorite books of last year. It's so freaking good. It's so freaking <laughs> good. You. And I do want to ask though, because I'm Italian and Italy mm -hmm. is like, you know, dream bucket list destination. Yes. I know you said you like the Amalfi Coast. What are your favorite things to do when you're in Italy? So my favorite things to do in Italy are just to walk around and just be there and then eat. I think that's those are my favorite it. things. That's yeah. perfect. Okay. I mean, it's just such a, you know, there's such amazing ambiance. I love the fact that in every part of Italy, you can turn a corner and you go from a McDonald's to like Roman ruins, just like right there in the street. Like just the fact that you can kind of feel all the different layers of history over time, but they're all in the same place. It's not like in America where I feel like we might have a historical house, which still is so much younger than any, anything in Europe, but it's in its own place. Like you have your little historical thing and then you have the modern things and rarely do they meet. And the fact that in so much of Italy, it just is centuries of history all just kind of jumbled up together, I think is really fun. And I just like to, to be there and just experiencing it without having a super intense agenda. I think that's the way to go. So what's your favorite thing to eat when you're in Italy? And if you had to recommend one thing for someone to do, like, it doesn't matter how long they're there for one thing, what would you recommend? Oh, that's hard. Um, well, I guess I would say it depends on if you think it's going to be your one and only trip. Because I do think there's something to be said for doing the things that everybody does, you know, uh, taking a gondola ride in Venice, seeing the Roman ruins, visiting the Vatican. Like, they're just things that if you're going to be there, you have to check them out and you won't regret it. But then it's like, it's, if it's your second tri trip, I say, like, skip all a lot of that stuff and just go off the beaten path. Um, <clears throat> my parents 
go back to Italy about every year and a half. I guess I am jealous too. And their favorite thing <laughs> to do is to, to rent an apartment kind of way off the touristy area in Venice or even on one of the smaller islands nearby and to just live that slow life for a few weeks, you know, walking around and finding your new favorite little restaurants and cafes um, and just having the whole experience. So if that's a thing you can tell someone to do to just like get off the beaten path and just walk around, um, then I would suggest that. My favorite thing to eat is, is by far pasta of every kind. And most little towns and cities generally often have sort of their trademark dish, the one that they're the most proud of. So I find you can go to most places and ask them, what do you think I should have as someone who hasn't visited like Siena, for example, and they will happily tell you exactly what you should try. And that's how you'll discover some of the best foods. Well, it makes me happy that you said Sienna because that's actually the main, the name of um, one of my main characters in my book, nice. who is loosely based around the Mediterranean in Italy. So Wonderful. apparently I'm taking that as a sign that I just need to go to Sienna and yes, eat pasta. Absolutely. There is. <laughs> now I'm blanking on what it's called. It's Sienna is, has their own specific pasta. It's almost like a really fat spaghetti. It's not bucatini. It's not hollow in the middle. I forget what it's called, but we had a dish there. It was, I think it might've just been like, a basic olive oil, you know, salt, pepper kind of situation, but it was so good. And the pasta was so fresh. And I think it was probably the best meal that I had in this past trip. And I wish I could remember the name of the restaurant or the name of the pasta. Is it, is it Tagliatelli? It's one I had never seen in the U.S. before. I had never heard of it. And they were like, this is a Siena pasta. This is our pasta. And I was like, okay, now I know. Lessons were learned. Okay. I'm very intrigued. I need yes. to know what kind of pasta this is because like I said, I'm part Italian and pasta. If I could eat one thing for the rest of my life, or if I only had to eat one thing for the rest of my life, it would probably yeah. be pasta. So, Same. okay. So time for me to do some research after this. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing I want to jump back to when you were kind of talking about uh, how it was influenced by like Wolverine and um, Rogue's Rogue. relationship, mm-hmm. uh, human connection in both of these books in this entire duology, one of the biggest themes is human connection. And, you know, Alyssa, 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 how do you say it? Alyssa. Alyssa. Okay. Alyssa's gift, you know, from the gods, it's supposed to magnify a partner's magic, but instead it ends up killing every suitor she touches, you know, until Dante comes along, yes. which of course <laughs> he has to come along. And I freaking love Dante. And, <laughs> you know, that kind of power and gift is very alienating for her especially you know in the beginning of the first book and it but at the same time it makes the connection that she's able to establish with Dante that much more powerful uh you know did you know that that's what you wanted to highlight like that human connection part specifically like especially from Wolverine and Rogue's relationship with Alessa and Dante right you know how did that I think that that was really the original seed of the idea um I moved from New Jersey to Virginia when I was 15 years old. Um, And that was a lot of a a big culture shock. Um, I then went to one school for a year and a half and then they redistricted and sent me to another one. So I basically went to three high schools in the span of the three years. And coming from a really small town and moving to a larger city in a very different state in a very different place at an age where your friends are becoming the most important thing in the world to you was, you know, in a lot of ways, somewhat traumatic. Um, but I think it also left such a mark on me that it probably will influence all of the stories that I write. So I'm very grateful for it. And I love the life that I have here now. Um, but I think that was just sort of seared onto my brain at this young age, how incredibly difficult it is to be 
around other people that are your age to be around your peers and yet to have no idea how to connect with them or where to start. And, you know, I think it was probably around that time in my life. Actually, I know it was around that time in my life because I remember the specifics um, that I, that I first watched, you know, the X-Men movie. And so I think that's part of why it left such a mark because I related so deeply to Rogue as this character who was kind of wandering the world, just looking for a place where she could belong and have a community to have friendship, but she couldn't because of her powers. And then she sort of meets the one person who isn't afraid of her. And that powerful experience of when you are really lonely or really isolated, one person being kind to you, one person reaching out or taking your hand or just speaking with you or seeing you when you're feeling invisible is incredible. And so I wanted to explore that with sort of that character dynamic again, because I like the fact that Dante, it's not even that he's, he's not friendly at first at all. <laughs> he's not very yeah, nice, no. <laughs> but he's not afraid of her. And that's the biggest thing for her is just to have someone around who not only is not afraid of her, but is so obnoxiously not afraid of her that he's, he won't even like respect the normal rules of etiquette um, in the Cittadella, whereas she's used to people just who are supposed to be able to at least get near her kind of fleeing at the sight of her. And so I just thought that was really powerful. And so I think that really was the the grain, the seed that infused every part of the book. Lots of the book I did not know was going to be a part of it, but that part was always there from the beginning. And now that you mentioned specifically like holding someone's hand, my mm -hmm. biggest love language is physical touch. Mm -hmm. And so many people, you know, when, you know, we're talking about love languages or whatever, they're like physical touch. I'm like, that doesn't mean sexual. Yeah. Like there are so many other kinds of physical touch that are important and you don't realize it unless that is kind of your love language. And, mm -hmm. you know, I never thought about that, but that, I wonder if that's why like I connected to that book so much in this series, because it is like, people don't understand. Like I've told my boyfriend 15 freaking times, you know, we've been together for 11 years. We've been together a long time and it's taken us a long time, longer than I want to admit to kind of learn <laughs> each other's love yeah. languages. But like when I'm feeling down, you know, I've told him, I was like, it's, it's about you coming up behind me and just, you know, kissing my cheek. Like while I'm doing the dishes, it's about you mm -hmm. holding my hand in public about you just putting your hand on my knee when we're in the car. Like, it's about those little touches that might not mean a lot to a bunch of people, but to mm -hmm. those of us who that is our love language, like it's so important. And we recognize that. And I didn't, I didn't even think about that until you just said that about like specifically like holding the hand. And I wonder if that's I one often of the wonder like, how many much reasons why I love this. The fact, you know, I, a lot of people, I think, assume that I wrote this book after sort of lockdowns and everything started because suddenly everyone was like, so relatable, right? You can't get close yeah. to people or someone's going to die. And I was like, no, I wrote this before <laughs> all of that. Um, and I actually, it's so fascinating to me because I think if this book had gotten published a year earlier, it might've hit a little too close to home for people. Like people might, it might've been a little too much to be like, oh great, we're also isolated in our fiction. But instead coming out as it did in the middle of 2022, I think there was a cathartic element for a lot of readers. Like they'd kind of gone through this really intense experience of suddenly being isolated or you know sent home from college or whatever it was. And so Alessa's experience was so relatable, but people were also, look, the world was starting to get back to normal a little bit. So it wasn't like pouring salt on the wound. It was more like we're all yeah. in this together and Alessa knows what you're going through. But there's a scene in This Vicious Grace where Alessa talks about a fictional historical event um, where a lot of babies were left orphaned 
And this was, this is based on actual psychology research. I was a psychology major. And that was another thing that stuck with me as I took a, you know, a class in college and they talked about all these studies about how babies and children specifically physically need human touch, that they will not, you can give them all the, you know, the entertainment and the food and the shelter and the warmth in the world. If they don't have physical contact with other people, they will often just kind of give up and they won't, they won't thrive. They won't grow up healthy. And I remember at that, that time thinking just how incredible it was that being close to other people and physically touching other people is actually so hardwired into our human brains that it is it is a need, not a want. Like it is something that we absolutely need to grow and develop healthily. And that left an impression on me too. And so I kind of worked that into the story. And I had a couple of people say like, that story sounds a little like over the top. And I was like, it's not though. Like that's actually not. true. And yeah, and that that idea that it's not self-indulgent to want friendships or relationships or to want to hug when you're sad, that is actually part of what makes us human. Obviously, everyone has different comfort levels for all of that. So I'm not saying that there's a baseline standard, but just that Alessa, I think, often feels like she's being selfish because she desperately wants a friend more than she wants to save the world. And that feels petty. But at the same time, it's not. And it is just as important to her to have human connection as it actually is for her to find the partner that will allow her to save the world because she's human and she needs that too. And I will say that it makes for some incredible scenes and some incredible <laughs> tension uh, between her and Dante. And that's all I'm going to say about that. But it's uh, it truly is a remarkable duology. And I'm... I'm just, I'm so excited for Cursed Light to be out. And Me too. when we're recording this, I think you only have, what, a week and a half left? Yep. And then it's out. You got any plans yeah. for release? Uh, I'm doing two events. It's, you know, it's a really busy time of year. It's the busiest time of year for bookstores. So I decided not even to try to attempt a big tour because, you know, every bookstore this time of year is kind of like, okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so I just, I'm going with two of my local indies, uh, Fountain Books in Richmond and Bluebird Books in Crozet, Virginia. So I'll be doing events the day it comes out and then two days after that. Um, but that's pretty much all I have officially on the calendar. I usually tend to like, hop in my car and drive to as many bookstores as I can get to, which is not very many, surprisingly, just because of where I live. There's a couple locally and then you have to really kind of trek a couple hours. So you know, I like to pop in and sign stuff, um, which was easier to justify with this vicious grace because it was the Barnes Noble book club pick. So at least I knew that any Barnes Noble I went to, it would be there, uh, which takes a lot of the pressure off because it's, I don't think most people realize before they get into publishing that just not every book is in every bookstore. Like that's just kind of mm -hmm. how that goes. Um, and it's getting even tougher these days. So I was super fortunate that I had that gift of knowing that I could walk into those stores and that they would have at least one copy it was wonderful. With, I know that this cursed light will be stocked by Barnes Noble, but there's not the same guarantee that it will be there on every YA section. So we'll see if I wimp out because I've been known to wander around bookstores for quite a while looking for it because I don't want to ask because I have this yeah. fear that they're going to be like, of course we don't have it. Why would we have your book? And I'm just going to slink out with my tail between my legs. <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. Well, as someone who is a bookseller, I can, I may or may not have already seen copies at my store. I've been so, tagged in some pictures and I'm like, yeah. where are these coming from? And yeah, I visited the McMillan warehouse, which also turns out it's surprisingly close to me. And I got a little peek behind the curtain and I got to hear more about kind of what the schedules are like and how they send 
kind of different waves of books out to different retailers at different times, uh, which is really interesting. But I definitely think they were less uh, strict with the sequel than they were with the, because the first one, it was like, those suckers did not show up. Cause they also, at that time, they didn't announce the Barnes Double Book Club picks until the day of. Now they announced them earlier. A little jealous, honestly, because I was waiting at the day of because I didn't want to say anything because it was supposed to be a top secret. Um, and then the week this Vicious Grace came out, uh, Macmillan, my publisher, had a data breach and they were all locked out of all their systems. Like everything was shut down. Like everyone was sent home, told to leave their laptops, not to log into anything. Like it was shut down. Um, and then oh on top God. of that, it was a holiday week and there was a lot going on in the world that week. Um, and Barnes Noble forgot to announce the book club pick. Um, so I spent a lot of that day being like, am I allowed to talk about, am, should I take a picture? Like, what am I supposed to be doing here? Um, so yeah, so with that one, it was like the book only landed on shelves, like the moment that it was supposed to, but, uh, this curse of light's kind of trickling out there to people. So we'll see. I'm, I'm very excited for people to read this now with it being, uh, a duology, this is mm -hmm. the last book in this, you know, in it this is. world, in this, oh, maybe not in this world, but at least in this little series. Um, what has it been like being, you know, getting to that closure, I guess, mm -hmm. of the series and saying kind of goodbye to a duology that has become kind of such a staple in the YA and YA fantasy community? Like how, how is it moving on to a different story, a different world after this, which has brought you, you know, success and has been so wonderfully received. And it's just a freaking um, incredible kick-ass book. Like, how do you move on from that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think it's only starting to hit me now. Um, the sequel gave me a run for my money. You know, this Vicious Grace was so easy to write. I was just writing to have fun. And then suddenly it was like, okay, well now you're on deadline. You've already promised this book to multiple publishers. The clock is ticking. You don't know how to write a sequel. Second books are hard. The world is ending. Your kids are home from school for a year and a half and like your house isn't big enough. I and mean, it was, it was intense. And um, people probably, the most devoted fans know this because they put up the pre-order links. It was supposed to come out in June. They put them up really early. And it was at a point where I was like, I don't think we're going to hit the June thing. And then so suddenly the pre-order links go up, people place orders. So like two weeks later, when my publisher's like, oh, hey, yeah, no, I, we're not going to be able to get this out by June. Everyone gets a little notification that's like, we're sorry, the publisher has changed the date. And they like, I think they put like a placeholder date in or something. So it told everybody it was coming out like a month later, but that wasn't right. And so then when they fixed it, it told them it was coming out in August and then they pushed it back to December. So I was like, oh my gosh, it's so embarrassing to think of all these readers being like, what is she doing with this book? And I'm like, it just wasn't ready yet. Um, so it was really, really difficult to write. And I also put a lot of pressure on myself. Um, I learned, again, my, my diamond shoes are too tight here. This is a good problem to have, but I knew that it would be hard to write a sequel after the first book was out. Because if people didn't like it, that would get in my head. And if people did like it, that would get in my head. And so again, I would rather have it be the second one. So I'm not complaining about that, but it did get, it got in my head. You know, um, suddenly I was very aware of what people enjoyed about the first book. And you just can't think like that when you're writing a sequel. Like it just, it's a great way to freeze up and panic and to wonder if you know what you're doing. Um, so it just took me a little while to get in my groove and to figure it out. And then I sort of dug in my heels for a while because 
a lot of people around me were saying that it's perfectly good. Like, let's move on to the next step. And I just, I knew it wasn't there yet. I knew there was more that had to happen. There's kind of that finishing layer of connections for me that I wish I could make that moment happen whenever I wanted to, but I just can't. There has to be a point where I write the book and then I step back for a minute. And then suddenly I wake up at 3 a.m. and it's like, oh, this connects with that. And that goes with this. And then that's when I sort of tie everything together, which I think helps create a really satisfying experience for the readers. Um, Cause that's when you trick people into thinking that like you had it planned out all along. No, I did not. <laughs> no, I didn't. You, no, no. You I go didn't. back in and you weave it all through. So it all feels all connected. Um, and in a weird way, I didn't intentionally have everything planned out, but I think a part of my mm. psyche did because when those connections happen, it is like, wow, huh? That does all tie together. How did I do that? And I don't know, but I need, I needed to get there. Um, and so I did finally get there, but it was like squeaking under the finish line. Um, so that's why like for people who did get physical arcs, sorry about the weird scene breaks and the typos. They just like, I sent in that document and they sent it to get formatted and they sent it to print. And I was like, whoa, whoa, hold on. We should look at it first. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, oh. Um, but so yeah, so if you have a physical arc specifically, uh, please buy the real book because it is better because <laughs> I fixed a lot of stuff after that. Um, but yeah, so all that to say, I think it really wasn't until the last few weeks that I even have begun to say goodbye because up until now it was just like, just keep running until you, you know, actually can like check it off the to-do list. So now it's starting to hit and it's, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, it's hard. You know, this book was tormenting me for a year and a half and now it's finally at the point where I really like it and I'm really proud of it. And I'm like, oh wait, now it's just, now we're done here? Like we just got to the good part. Um, so I think it's going to be hard. Uh, I think writing the next book is going to be a new kind of emotional challenge because I have to remind myself that I will fall in love with the characters in the world eventually. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like not breaking up. I'm not breaking up with Dante and Alessa, but like, you know, like I'm moving on from something like we had a good thing going and now I've got to start <laughs> over with these characters who are absolute strangers to me and I don't even know them that well yet. Um, but I'll, it'll get there and, and that'll be good. And I've really figured out what my strengths are, I think. And the greatest part really has been that I've discovered that the things that I really, really enjoy writing seem to be the, exactly the things that my readers enjoy the most, which is uh, an incredible gift and gives me a lot of freedom to say, you know, yeah, I'm writing a long bantery scene. You can't tell me not to, because <laughs> that's what they like. Dude, I'm telling you, the freaking banter in <laughs> The Last Fedestra duology is freaking amazing. Again, that relationship between Alessa and Dante, it's it's chef's kiss. It's, it's chef's kiss. It's my favorite thing to write. It's so freaking good. It's, I literally, I could just go on for five minutes and just saying it's so freaking good. Like this duology is so freaking good. Um, <laughs> now that you've had, you know, kind of a career where you've had those projects or that project, you know, before you got an agent to uh, this vicious grace and this curse light, you know, how has your storytelling and like, how has that changed and morphed and gotten better? And how have you learned to understand what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are? And kind of how do you handle that as you're writing, you know, the next project that you have going on? Sure. I think the biggest thing is that I have learned to trust the process and to trust my process, even if it's not the easiest process. Um, and a big part of, I think, why the sequel was so hard is that I wasn't following my process. Um, I was trying to write a complete full draft, which is never a thing that I do. Um, the way I usually write is very exploratory. 
I tend to sort of write starting with the scenes that come into my head first that are the most fun. And then I sort of kind of start patching them together. And I kind of write through to about like a 25% mark. And it, there's a lot of like, you know, insert scene here or insert travel here. And then as I get going, those threads start to come together. I loop back to the beginning. I fill in more. I write a little bit farther. I go back to the beginning. I fill in more. So I basically end up with a act one that has been revised five billion times and the ending often is like written and maybe polished and that's kind of it um like if you compared how many edits I made to the beginning versus the end it's it's entirely different um and I was trying to do it differently I was trying to work on a deadline I was trying to get a complete draft so I could send it to an editor for the first time versus like having something that's already polished before you present it and so it was sort of a painful lesson but it really taught me that I have to be true to the way that I write. And now that I'm more aware of that, I think it will change how I, you know, interact with schedules and stuff in the future. Um, I'm really determined this time around uh, with the books that I will be hopefully selling, I don't know yet, to, to get them drafted, to really like, to get to a point where I'm pretty comfortable, where I can sort of see the end goal, even if they're not fully revised or polished, but just that I, I kind of can start to see the, the forest for the trees before I have a strict deadline put on me because I realized that that generative creative part where I'm just figuring out the story for myself, that can't be rushed. And if there's too much pressure on me or too much observation at that point, I get really stifled. Once I get to the revision phase, I'm like, get in here, everybody give me all your feedback, all your notes, like let's rip it to shreds. But I have to kind of protect that little baby phase um, where I'm just figuring it out and I'm writing the scenes that feel like a waste of time, but end up being my favorite scenes in the end. So I think I have become more confident in the things that I already was doing well. Um, and I'm still kind of, you know, tackling the things that I don't do as well. But um, yeah, I, I think it just comes down to recognizing that every book is going to be challenging in a new and different way, figuring out what it is that works for you and communicating clearly with the publishing team around you so that you know, I, I tend to kind of do the thing where I say like, it's tomorrow, I'll turn in tomorrow, tomorrow. Okay, one more day, one more day where I should just say like, it's going to be a couple weeks. I'll be back <laughs> to you soon. Because like, if you're always like one minute behind deadline, it ends up being worse than if you just like took a week off, let yourself rest and kind of recover and then get back into it. Um, so yeah, and I think that, yeah, I, I get, like I said, I get tagged by readers all the time talking about the things that they love about it. And luckily for me, those are all the things that I already thought that I was pretty strong at. So I can just kind of keep doing those and then developing the other parts that I want to challenge myself with. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot, but uh, I, we'll see. I, I, and I'm learning to trust in my own creativity and say that I know that there are going to be moments where it feels like I'm never going to figure out the ending, or it feels like nothing is interesting right now. And I just have to trust that if I just keep going and I just keep working on it, that I'll have those light bulb moments, you know, being patient, letting my brain ruminate in the background and figure stuff out. Well, I am, I'm so excited for Cursed Light to come out and for people to, you know, rediscover Vicious Grace, you know, people who haven't read it and just to see where this duology goes. But at the same time, I'm very excited to see what you're going to come up with in the future, because honestly, like this was uh vicious grace was a hell of a debut. Like it was like, <laughs> I, I am. I won't lie. Oppressed. I do have moments where I'm like, why did I start with the book that I just love so much? <laughs> but it's I will love the others too. I'll amazing. get there. 
it's amazing. And like I said, it's a, it's a hell of a debut and I'm just, I'm so excited to see what your future and what your career is going to develop, you know, into and what's going to like come from you. Like, I'm just, I'm so excited, but, um, I congratulations. Uh, like I said, you got a week and a half. I'm so excited to see it out on shelves and and to everyone who's considering everyone who hasn't read this vicious grace, a completed duology. Just just please do. Um, and yeah, pre-ordering this curse of light or buying it the week it comes out is truly the best way you can help me hopefully have more books to write. Cause that is really what publishing looks at and publishing is it's a bit cutthroat these days. So we could all use all the help we can get. So if people are considering it, I'll be eternally grateful. Um, again, those first week sales are going to probably play a big role. And when I come in and I say, here's my next idea. And, uh, if people would like to read whatever my next idea might be, then that's the best way you can help me hopefully make that happen. And I guarantee you, you will want to read whatever she comes up with next. So <laughs> go by Curse Light, go by Vicious Grace. You know, like she said, complete the duology. It's freaking amazing. Uh, so I'm going to transition to kind of our rapid fire questions. Okay. I am going to add one to the list okay. that I sent you because okay. <laughs> we started talking about X-Men and I'm a huge Marvel fan. And so I want to ask, who is your favorite X-Men character? Wolverine. Wolverine. Okay. Yeah. Are you excited that... uh? Hugh Jackman is coming back as Wolverine again? I am. Yeah. I mean, there's always a part of me that, you know, I I adore him. I think he's wonderful. I'm in a weird place in my life because I have kids now. And so like we watch The Greatest Showman all the time. And that weirds me out so much because I know Hugh Jackman isn't Wolverine. Like I I know that. <laughs> I know that. But when I was working on drafting this first light and we were watching The Greatest Showman, I was like, I can't, I can't do this right now. Like I also super fun movie, but I was like, okay, but like look like Wolverine but not Wolverine dancing and singing like it threw me off so badly <laughs> so I always love seeing him come back as Wolverine and I'm also looking forward to being able to enjoy watching him in other movies and not getting all confused in my head about the fact that Wolverine is playing a different role because because maybe I don't know that they're different people <laughs> it was a very long answer so I'm not good at short <laughs> no you're good and I like that answer that's and you can't go wrong with Wolverine you really yes. can't he's such a great character now, what is your I favorite grumpy, reluctant hero? Just, I love it. They're amazing, and I'm sorry, but they're some of the best ones. I don't care what anyone else says; they really are. Uh, so, what is your favorite genre to read? Uh, I actually like to read adult romance, adult contemporary romance. Um, I like, obviously, I love fantasy. I love science fiction. I grew up on science fiction, reading all my dad's science fiction. But I find, especially now that I'm writing it, I'm spending so much of my time in that zone that sometimes it's easier to relax and enjoy a book if I step outside of it. And I really think that adult contemporary romance authors are some of the most incredible writers and their ability to capture your interest and hold your attention for an entire book when you already know how it's going to end is takes so much skill and so much effort. And I feel like just by like gobbling those up, I get to absorb some of their superpowers and then hopefully translate it into my own work. Who's your favorite romance author right now? I love Emily Henry. Although I actually think that she has tricked the world into reading literary fiction. Mm-hmm. Especially with actually... her last release. Yeah, I was like, we're going to call these rom-coms, but they're not. They just have a very strong romantic element and she writes fantastic banter and dialogue. Um, but I'm here for it. Totally here for it. I a hundred percent agree with you because some of my friends at work who are also booksellers, we've had a discussion like that. Like we finished her last one. Was it happy place? Was that her most recent yes. one? 
the pink cover we read that and my friend madeline and i we were talking and she's like okay do you think that was romance and i was like <laughs> not necessarily it definitely yeah. felt more like literary fiction but the romance in it was really good but yeah. she's i'm not i'm not a literary fiction reader i like fantasy and i like romance mm-hmm. like those are my those are my favorites and i really struggle reading a book that doesn't have either of those in there mm-hmm. and for her though to keep my interest like her writing is just so good and her characters so are good. so good but i i 100 agree with you it's at this point she, it's it's literary she's fiction, gonna like but... pull off the curtain and be like haha just kidding now it turns out you like literary fiction We're like only when you do it right like taylor swift <laughs> switching like taylor exactly. swift switching from country to yeah what she sings yep. now okay so if you could write one trope that you haven't written already what would it be that was a question I was stuck on. So I was like, oh, usually if I think of a trope I want to write, I shove it right in there. And there's a lot of tropes in this vicious grace. Um, I guess technically this vicious grace does not have just one bed. It's like just one room and there's one, just one couch, but there's technically no just one bed. So I'm going to say that I'm saving that one for the next because I have a very... I think a very fun um, subverting that trope moment in the project I'm working on right now. So I'm excited about that. Mm, I'm very excited. Mixing it up a little bit. I like it. Now, what are you currently reading and what is on your TBR list this month? I am reading, I brought it out with me, um, To Gaze Upon Wicked Gods. It's an arc by Molly X. Chang. I'm so jealous. The on sale date. Yeah, the best part, so this is the thing with once you're a published author, I like never read books that are out because I'm always reading books that people have requested that I read for a blurb. So all like I go to the bookstore and I'm like, oh, I recommend none of them are out yet. Okay, cool. Um, so I'm reading that and I'm reading um, The Divided Sky. I feel like the title changed from the beginning. Uh, Dill 2 has a science fiction, a young adult science fiction, sci- sci- sci-fi romance coming out next year. Um, and I will just say I'm loving it. And especially the fact that she uses some sci-fi tropes to incorporate some fantastic romance tropes in a way that I've never seen it done before. And I think people are going to really enjoy it. And I have been fighting so hard for years. Like we got to bring back, bring back YA sci-fi. Some of our favorite books are YA sci-fi. Like, I don't know why we've been acting like this category can't sell because it absolutely can't. So Again, another long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, and what was the what was the title of the second um, one? Is it? I think it's under the dividing sky. Under the or dividing it sky. used to be okay. under the dividing sky. Now it's just the. It's. I'm terrible at this. Jill too. I'm looking it up. Her last name is T E W. So people can look that. She also has a podcast called The Afronauts, which is delightful. Ooh. Um, the dividing sky. Divide. The dividing sky. Yes. Okay. I'll have to look into that one. Now, what is the most valuable piece of advice you've received in regards to your writing? Uh, my first writing teacher at Writer House told me to go through and take out a descriptor from every line and then go back and do it again, um, which in and of itself isn't necessarily life-changing advice. But her point was good. And it's something that I have developed into a bit of a skill, I think, which is Um, as writers, we love to write beautiful words. We love to write evocative experiences. And so often we want to make absolutely sure that the reader gets it. So we do too much of it. 
And so what I would tell my mentees is that one, if you can kind of squeeze all the water out of your book, if you can cut all the words that don't absolutely need to be there, you're going to condense the goodness of it and make it tastier for your readers. Um, but also in general, if you're someone who writes like I do, every time you have more than one descriptive word in a sentence, stop and look at it because <laughs> your most beautiful lines, people won't notice them <clears throat> if they're surrounded by other equally flowery lines. So I think it's important to go through, figure out what lines you really, really love, which descriptive words you really, really love and cut the rest of it so that people can actually see it and it's not just overcrowded. So yeah, so learn to line edit and be brutal with yourself because it will make your work better. I appreciate that because I'm doing revisions now and <laughs> I'm just going to take that advice to heart. That's all it's I'm going to say. <laughs> yep. Yeah, again, I overwrite to begin with because I started with NaNoWriMo. My goal was just to get as many words down as possible. So my usual strategy is to draft just like every word, every thought, everything. And then I have to go back and be like, no, <laughs> you don't get to use all of these. I don't kill my darlings. I move them into an orphan's folder. So any line, any description, anything that I like that I know needs to go, I move them all into a different Scrivener folder. And then I still have them and I can use them for something else or I can bring them back to a later part of the book. Uh, but yeah. Learning how to do that is probably the most valuable skill that I've learned. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna take that advice. You, I, this is just, I'm telling you, this episode is just helping my anxiety, man, about this whole process. <laughs> I appreciate so it. That's why I loved mentoring. That was my favorite part is being able to share the things that I've learned and to, you know, to really work with other writers who have their eye on the prize and who are out there trying to do the thing because it's a hard career, but the more you're open to listening to other writers and learning from them and trading experience, the better it's, it's going to be. Seriously, I'm going to have to take a bunch of notes as I when I'm editing this episode and just write all this stuff down so I don't forget it. Now, if you weren't an author, what do you think you would be doing for work? If you could be anything in the world besides an author. Most of the things I would want to do are probably things I would struggle to have someone pay me for. Um, I was a teacher uh, until a few years ago. I decided to stop teaching when my kids were we're little, um, and I don't think I could go back into public school teaching right now. It's just uh, my my brain is just not up to the challenge of the logistics. Um, I love home improvement projects and crafts. I have ADHD. I'm very much the ADHD archetype of like, I'll learn how to make jewelry. And then the next day it's like, no, I'll refinish furniture. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to paint all the houses. So um, maybe kind of like they used to have a lot of those like home improvement blogs. I could do one of those because that would give me an excuse to do all my house projects and theoretically call it a job. But yeah, something like that where it's like, I'm like buying old furniture and finishing it because at least then I have an active project to work on at all times. So I do want to ask because I'm the same way. Like I will fixate on whether it's, you know, crocheting or uh -huh. stained glass or whatever it is. And I fixate on that for like a month and yep. I have to have all the materials. I have to learn everything. And then yep. I'm like, oh, I'm never, I'm not going to finish this. Just kidding. Oh, Are yes. you like that too? Okay. Oh yes. Yeah. That's why there's a, this is not a spoiler, but there is a line in this Curse of Light where Alessa is sort of envisioning her future of what she pictures as like a happy life. And I specifically kind of mentioned this house, like full of all the discarded projects and hobbies that she picks up and tries and then gives up on because that is very much, very much on brand for me. I apologize for my computer binging. Max, they all communicate. Your phone and your computer, they all conspire against you. And I don't know how to make them stop doing that. Yeah. I turn my phone on do not disturb when I start an interview and yes. I still get notifications on my on my desktop. Yeah. And I'm like, guys, I don't want to be disturbed. I am focusing. <laughs> 2023, the technology can do amazing things, but it can't do some of the most basic things. Right. Oh, wow. Exactly. 
Now, if you could invite any person over for dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not good at making decisions. Um, the first thing that came to mind since we're talking about books would possibly be Anne McCaffrey. Um, for people who haven't read Anne McCaffrey's books, if you read them with a 2023 brain, you're going to be like, what were they doing? But I read them a long time ago, pulling them off my dad's bookshelves, and she influenced so much of my writing. I would love to to pick her brain to see where she came up with all of it. And also just to show her my books. There are some nods to her books in my books, and uh, that would be really cool. And she is no longer alive, so that will not happen. Now, what about fictional? If you could invite a fictional person over for dinner, who would you invite? I think I'd invite Alessa over because I just want to give her a hug. I've put her through so much, so much. And I'm sorry, I would say Dante, but he would kill me for all that I've done to them. So I feel like Alessa would get it. Like she knows what it's like when you're like, you know, she's killed three partners accidentally. Like she's like, I had to, what am I supposed to do? And I feel like I could say that to her and she would be like, okay, I kind of get it. Maybe. You're definitely right about Dante. Yeah. He would not yeah. be the greatest dinner guest. Yeah. Oh, I said that once because oh. someone had asked the question, like, what if your character showed up on your doorstep? And I made some comment about it. And then uh, the author, Kate Dillon, was like, Emily, if your characters show up on your doorstep, you need to run because they are not going to be happy with you. So that is a really good point, actually. Would that not is be a good point. <laughs> you would have to have minimum Alessa there to kind of yeah. calm him and like, curb right. his. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Use, her, use her as a human <laughs> shield. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, where is a place that you haven't visited that you would like to, both domestically and internationally? So many places. Um, can I pick more than one? Because I want to absolutely. Go well, I'm going to pick a bunch that because I want to go to all the places where my book is out. Um, I just think it's so fascinating. I am amazed by translators. The work they do absolutely blows my mind, and the fact that there are readers out there in the world reading my books in languages that I can't speak is already like hard enough to believe. But I think if I could actually walk through the bookstores in a lot of those countries and actually just like see it on the shelves that would be absolutely mind-blowing so but if I have to pick one for today I'll go with Germany because I did just find out that I earned out my German advance which nice like congratulations so yeah that so I'll, I'll let I'll they'll be in top spot right now because they're the ones that I just got that good news from so so thank you to everyone in Germany who's been buying my books that's so exciting congratulations thank that's you. huge that's amazing. Apparently they're a really big market for fantasy. So doing well, I guess. In publishing, we don't usually know how our books are doing. You kind of just have to like read the air because uh, we don't get actual numbers or statistics until way later. And even then, not always. Um, so it's pretty cool when you just one day, like you have a little check and you're like, why do I, why is someone giving me money? And it's like, oh, oh, <laughs> the book's apparently doing well. I didn't know. So yeah. No, really could cool. you explain uh, really quickly, just briefly, like what it means to earn out your advance for people who don't know? Sure. Um, so the way it works in traditional publishing, at least originally, the thought process was that since authors need to make money so that they can live while they write the book, you would sell a book and you would get an advance, which was basically the publisher kind of does their magical math about how much they think your book is willing to sell. And then... Um, there's, it's complicated math, but then they basically give you what they're saying is, okay, if we sell your book and you're going to get 10% of the proceeds from it, we think your book's going to sell this many copies. So we're going to give you that much upfront. Now, over the past few years and decades, 
upfront is no longer upfront and they divide it into lots of chunks. And so for a lot of us out here, we're getting, you know, 25% of it when we sign the contract, 25% when we turn in the first book, 25% when the book comes out in hardcover, 25% when it comes out in paperback. So it ends up getting spread out over years and years, but they still call it in advance. Um, and so the author doesn't get any additional royalties until their 10% cut has basically been earned back through the sales of that book. Um, a lot of people in publishing get the misconception that authors have to like pay back their advance, which is not what it is. It's basically the publisher just says, we're going to pay you what we think you're going to make in the beginning. And when your book, when or if your book has sold more copies than we expected, then you get more money. That's all it is. Um, but so depending on the size of the advance, which can vary hugely and does vary hugely based on territories and markets and genre and everything, um, you can get a really high advance, which means you get more guaranteed money, again, quote unquote, upfront. Um, but it may take years and years and years for your book to earn out. Um, or you can have a smaller advance and earn out faster, vice versa. But it basically, earning out your advance is just a way the publishing world pats you on the head and says, hey, like we thought your book was going to do this well and it's done even better. Congrats. Um, so it's just, it's exciting and it's a milestone whenever it happens. And I was lucky to earn out my, my UK advance very quickly as well. So those are those are the two. The rest of them were chipping away at it. You know, we'll get there. <laughs> Every sale counts. <laughs> well, thank you for explaining that. Um, okay, so last question. What currently brings you joy? The fact that we are painting our little, we'll call it a cottage. That's a really generous way to describe it. We just moved to a new house a few months ago. And a big selling point for me was that there's like a little converted cottage. Again, that again, makes it sound real fancy. It's not that uh, little space in the backyard, um, but it was looking really rough. Uh, so I do all the aesthetic videos and photos of the kind of the interior little corner where I've cleaned things up, but the outside of it is rather hideous. And we are uh, aggressively scraping off some very old 1970s paint and repainting it in a blue color this weekend. And I'm really excited about that. Very nice. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for being here. It was an absolute honor to chat with you. Like thank I said, I've been a fan me. of yours from like the first time I read uh, Vicious Grace. And I was so nervous to ask you because I've never met you in person. And I'm just like, I don't the know if I reach out to her, you'll ever meet. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I was like, if I reach out to her, like, I don't know if she's going to say yes. And I'm going to be really bummed if she says no, because I love her books. But thank you so much for being here. It honestly, it was an honor. And just congratulations on everything. And I'm so excited to see what your future holds. Thank you so much. This was great. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And before I sign off, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to tune in. If you want to stay up to date on episodes and announcements, please subscribe or follow me at The Real Bookish Writer or at The Well Read Podcast on Instagram. Thank you again for listening and have a magical day. See you next week.